Thank you, John, for another beautiful prayer. A couple of weeks ago, I asked John if he could collate all his prayers for me. Uh, and he did that and uh, put them in a little booklet form. And they are so beautiful. Um, well, we return to the gospel of John once again. This is our 36th sermon from the gospel of John in the last couple of months and a half we've had a string of sermons from John six or seven or so then I preached a message you recall entitled run to Jesus where we looked at some of the blessings and the promises and the power that we have from our savior then Reformation Sunday rolled about and I preached a sermon on the five solas of the Reformation all centered upon gospel truths then we had two excellent sermons from our assistant pastor Andrew one on sin and the other on Josiah, which pointed us to Christ. And then last Sunday, we considered the confidence and the hope we have in the new covenant and how that confidence we have in the new covenant ought to move us and compel us like it did the Apostle Paul to minister in the Lord's church with faithfulness and boldness, knowing that we are recipients of the new covenant and all the promises of the new covenant, which were purchased for us by our Lord Jesus who gifts us not only with salvation, but also gifts us with spiritual gifts to serve, a ministry to serve in and to fulfill. And we do so in light of that new covenant glory, not as those who lose heart, we looked at, who give in, but as those who endure by grace. Steady as we dig deep into the truth of being saved to serve in this new covenant, because God made us, we recall, you recall we looked at God made us adequate to serve in this new covenant. Well, this morning we return to John chapter five. And by way of reminder, we're in the midst of a lengthy discourse by Jesus. And so I want to invite you to turn with me with your, in your Bibles to John chapter five. This is our fourth sermon in this discourse in John chapter five. And this morning we'll be focusing on verses 32 to 47. But I want us to read verse 16 through to verse 47 to kind of bring us back into this discourse. And so follow along with me in your Bibles, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Why? Because he was doing these things, that is healing a lame man on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son, so that all who will honor the son, even as they honor the father, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know the testimony which he gives about me is true. You've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice For a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And yet do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's a long discourse from Jesus. We're halfway through it. Let's pray. Father, we come uh, before you and we ask, Lord, that you'd go ahead of us. We've shaken off the worries and the cares of this world and worshipped you. We're lost, as it were, in adoration, fixed in adoration. And so, Father, we come now to sit under your word. And would you speak through your word? Would you plant your word deep in our hearts by your spirit, whom we thank you for. And we pray that the spirit would do a mighty work of sanctification, of stabilization in our lives. I pray for anyone here who's burdened, that their heart is broken, that this would be a healing balm for them. I pray, Father, for anyone who is lost, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself and that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, I pray all these things so that you would get glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, the Gospel of John, I'm excited to be back in it. It's all about possessing life in Christ, eternal life. We know from the pages of Scripture, particularly the pages of John's Gospel, that eternal life is both a future reality for the Christian, but also a present reality for the Christian. We just read in verse 24, Jesus' own words, that the one who believes has eternal life, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment. So really, there's two types of people alive today. Those who have eternal life in them as a reality, and those who have the judgment and wrath of God upon them as a reality. You'd recall, I'm sure by now, the purpose of the gospel of John. We must never forget the purpose of the gospel of John each and every time we come to this gospel. John chapter 20 verse 31 says that this gospel was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in His name. Life in His name. That is to say, the purpose of John is evangelistic and is what? Experiential. It's experiential. It's evangelistic, for it calls for a verdict time and time again. And it's experiential because it gives you new life in Christ And once it gives you that new life in Christ, it then fuels and energizes you to live that life through what? Through the lens of John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth. We saw his glory. How did we see his glory? Well, John chapter 11, verse 40, Jesus says there, did I not say to you that when you believe, you will see the glory of God? Not when you die, but when you believe, you will see the glory of God. We live eternal life in each temporary moment that we live. We live that with glory to behold. And really, to the measure that we are beholding the glory of Christ is the measure we're truly alive. Living life in his name, as it were. And to live for Christ and to behold the glory of Christ are not cliches. They're not platitudes. It's to be moved by who he is, his person. It's to be Compelled by his love, what he does and what he continues to do for us and in us and through us. It is, as Spurgeon said, to be so caught up in Christ's love and who Christ is, that the more we're caught up in Christ's love, the more we would hate to think that we have sinned against such a love. We know that when we do sin, we have an advocate With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And yet, when Jesus' love for us and his person is increasing more and more, we will be ever sensitive to the ways in which we let him down and sin against such a love. By God's immense love, we have become Christ's own. 
He's not afraid to call us friend. In fact, in John 15, 15, Jesus says, I have called you friends. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. John chapter 1, verse 10 to 13 says that Jesus came into the world. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him to them, Jesus gave the authority to become the children of God. Those who believe in his name, they believe because they were born born anew, given new life. They were born, John chapter 1 verse 12 says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's our reality. That's who we are. Friends and family with Jesus and one another. We're children of the most high The world will not understand us. The world will malign us. The world must not mold us. We're alive to Christ, dead to the world. We have eternal life. That's what John's gospel is about. John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born anew. You must have new life given to you. John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, remember, I give living water. It results in lasting satisfaction. It provides you all that you need, not to live for yourself, but to live for God and His glory. John chapter 5, Jesus comes by the pool of called Bethesda, and he cuts through the superstition that they had of the stirring of the water, you remember, and he heals that lame man, 38 years, unable to walk, and he does so on the Sabbath, and that's when this discourse that we just read commences. In John chapter 5, on the heels of being attacked by the nation's leadership, Jesus then opens up into this John 5 discourse, which is really split neatly into two. Again, Verses 19 to 30 is where our Lord speaks to the fact that a person can actually truly know God because God the Father, the one true God, is revealed to that person through the Son. That is, that Jesus the Son shares in full divine equality with the Father. And while no one prior to Jesus coming to earth had known or seen God, It was, according to John chapter 1, verse 18, the Son who explains the Father to us. That's what it says. That's the first part of the discourse. The second part is really verses 31 to 47. And that's where we're going to be this morning. In this discourse that we're presently in, which by way of reminder, are words spoken to the Jewish leaders who were Verse 16 tells us persecuting Jesus and verse 18 tells us we're trying to kill Jesus. That's who these words were to. Jesus says in verse 25, look there with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. We heard, therefore we live. Not as the world lives. 
but with eternal life and living water. That living water is flowing in us, and it's a spring of life flowing out of us. We live spiritual lives. Our lives ought to be very different from the world around us. We ought to be, in many ways, countercultural to the world around us. We're called, as I said, not to conform to the world around us. Our life is a life that is marked by living in His name. And that's what John the Apostle has been laboring all along for this to be clearly seen by the reader with his purpose in mind that you might believe and then in believing have life in his name. This is what he's been laboring all along for, that it would be clearly seen by the eye of faith. Well, this second portion, this second half, as we close out chapter 5, before we jump into yet another summer in the Psalms, we always need the Psalms, but I think particularly in the days that we're in at the moment, we need to be washed in the Psalms, swimming in the Psalms. And so, Lord willing, we'll do another summer in the Psalms and then come back next year into John chapter 6 with all the treasures of its glory and its grace. In this discourse, we have presented for us in our passage this morning, verse 31 to 47, a very intriguing portion of scripture. It's quite a challenge really to boil down, to actually boil this all down and and present it to you in a simple way. I've prayed and prepared and I hope that it benefits us in considerable ways. In verses 32, 31 to verse 47 of John 5, we'll, we will see four testimonies to Jesus being the savior of the world. We sung about Jesus being the savior of the world. This time around Christmas time, we think of him being the savior of the world. Well, here in our passage, we will see four testimonies to Jesus being the savior of the world, the son of God. If you missed the few sermons that I did on the first part of this discourse, I encourage you to go back online and listen to those. But as for this second half, that moves from Jesus saying he is equal with God the Father, both in power and in honor, in the first half, to here now in the second half, moving now to show who it is and what it is that testifies about him being the Savior of the world, the Son of God. I want us to begin by looking at verse 31. Jesus says, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is saying here that it's impossible for anyone anyone's testimony to be accepted on the basis of your own word. I mean, think about it. If someone was to come and say to you that they jumped off the top of Tomata Peak here in Havelock this morning at 9.20 a.m. and flew here on one of those Red Bull uh, winged things that are super cool and flew across from the Tomata Peak and landed here at Riverbend and then walked into church 9.25 early like a boss, uh, that would be very difficult um, to believe, particularly if no one here saw him or her do that. God has given us commands in Scripture, such as the Old Testament law in places like Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And so Jesus is saying, that if I or someone else just comes along and says, I am equal to God the Father, that my Father and I are both working, that all who honor the Son honor the Father also, that I and my Father are one, it kind of means little to nothing if it's just spoken. 
if he testifies of that simply by himself. And remembering the purpose of John is that a person might believe and then have life in Jesus' name and then be free indeed because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Remembering all that, Jesus here is drawing on testimony. If he just comes and says it on his own, he knows it's not enough, particularly to the people who are standing before him. Now, there's one thing we need to point out. When Jesus says there in verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. It's important to realize that he does not mean by that, that his testimony of who he is, is unreliable in any way. Flick ahead with me to John chapter 8 and look at verse 14 for a very quick moment. John chapter 8 verse 14. Jesus says there in verse 14, If I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I am, where I have come from and where I am going. Now, do we have a serious contradiction of the Word of God there? No. Here's why. The testimony of a person can be true. And what Jesus says is true. In no way is Jesus' testimony of himself untrue. It's just that in John 5, which you can turn back to, he's talking to religious Jews who Jesus knew needed to hear what the law demanded. That is, two or three witnesses to establish a fact. And that's what Jesus is doing here, and that's what he sets out to do. And so if you're taking notes, or you need something to hang your thoughts upon, the four testimonies, or better put, the fourfold testimony that we'll see to Jesus being the Savior of the world, the Son of God, that'll be in our sermon this morning is, I want to give you those up front. Number one, we'll see the testimony of a faithful servant in verses 33 to 35. And then second, we'll see the testimony of Jesus' own works in verse 36. We'll see third, the testimony of the Father in verses 37 to 38. And then fourth and finally, we'll see the testimony of the Word of God in verses 39 to 40. Seven. So that's where we're going to journey through this morning. But before we look at verse 33 to 35 under that heading, the testimony of a faithful servant, I want you to look with me at verse 32. Look at verse 32 of John 5. Jesus says, There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. This kind of serves as the undergirding reality and truth from where all of the four testimonies that we'll see this morning come from. Namely, the Father. All truth and testimony flows from the Father, including all the four testimonies that we'll see this morning. But all truth flows from the Father, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. James chapter 1 verse 17. All truth and all testimonies to truth comes from God the Father. And so Jesus, in verse 32, is anchoring everything he's going to say from verse 33 to verse 47 with the four testimonies. He's anchoring it all in that single fact. 
that there is another, God the Father, who testifies of me, and the testimony that he gives is true. The first testimony Jesus calls upon to authenticate that he is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, is, as I said, number one, the testimony of a faithful servant. Look at verse 33. You have sent to John. There he is, John the Baptist. And Jesus says, he has testified to the truth. Look at verse 34. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. Then Jesus says this, but I say these things so that you may be saved. There's the heartbeat of God, that people might be saved. Even these hypocritical religious leaders. John the Baptist, who we've spoken much of in prior sermons in our series through John, was one who came testifying to Jesus being the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's ministry was to make way for the Messiah. He was the last of all the Old Testament prophets. He was sent ahead of Jesus. You know, they were in the womb together. There's a divine timetable playing out here. He was sent ahead of Jesus to make way for Jesus. And then when Jesus arrives, John the Baptist then to all and sundry who would hear, he says, there he is. That's him. So he not only prepares the way, but he points to who Jesus is. And so Jesus is first drawing upon John the Baptist as a matter of testimony. But he's not doing it. Jesus isn't doing this for Jesus' own sake. He's doing it. Again, for the sake of the Jewish listeners who are before him. So that they, as it says in verse 34, might be saved. Well, what, what does it mean for them to be listening to John the Baptist and the hope that they may be saved? Well, what's the real depth of that phrase there from Jesus? Well, in Matthew chapter 21... Verse 26 and Luke chapter 20, verse 6, we get a glimpse into the fact that people regarded John the Baptist as a legitimate prophet from God. He was one who shone forth light. It was reflected light. Verse 35 says it was light from as a lamp. You know, a lamp doesn't shine its light from its own resource. It has to have light coming from somewhere else. So John the Baptist was not the light. He reflected the true light, the light of Jesus. He was a faithful witness of the light. He certainly was burning. He certainly was shining as he thundered his message of repentance from dead works to looking at who now arrived, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. The people... They initially loved hearing from John the Baptist. Why? Because they were excited about the Messiah to come. But as soon as John the Baptist began to condemn their hypocrisy and point out their sin, as soon as he began to preach hard things, they walked away. You remember John the Baptist preached against the immoral conduct in the land? He preached against the king's unbiblical marriage arrangement. It cost him his head. And he did all of that 
because he cared not for his own esteem, but for the glory of the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, and the worth of Christ. And you remember that Jesus said, there has never been a greater man born among women than John the Baptist. That's Jesus' first witness that he calls in. A witness who the people flocked to at first, and then they turn from that light that John was reflecting. And they do that because, as John told us in chapter 1, people love darkness rather than light. Well, the second testimony that Jesus calls upon as he seeks to show that his own testimony of himself is insufficient if he's just saying it in many ways, but it needs to be backed up by several witnesses. The second testimony is, number two, the testimony of Jesus' own works. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. It's quite the statement. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, they testify about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is saying here that even though all that John said and did as the greatest man born among women, Jesus is saying the works, the things that I do, that I perform in your midst, are greater evidence. Greater evidence of what? Greater evidence of my authenticity as the Savior of the world. Son of God, in whom you should and in whom you must believe. I want you to notice that Jesus' works here have as their author God the Father. That's what he says in verse 36. You think about how, you think about how many times we read in the Gospel of John that Jesus was sent from the Father, not to do his own will, but to do the Father's will. The Father gave the Son a mission. That mission was given to the Son before the world was made. Before time, the Father gave the Son a mission. Aren't you glad the Son completed His mission for you? We wouldn't have any hope. We wouldn't have any joy. We certainly wouldn't have any unity to zealously maintain. Does it not warm your heart this very day? That everything that you were unable to do, Jesus did for you. You and I were unable to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And the law demanded righteous requirements from you and I, but we couldn't do them. And the law not only required righteousness, it also required punishment. If you broke the law, God is not unjust so as to overlook that. He must punish transgression of the law aren't you so glad isn't your heart so warm that Jesus did that for you I mean you think that the great pactum salutis that we've considered time and time again that before time we read in multiple places in scripture Jesus says multiple times in the gospel of John all that the father has given me It is for those whom he has given me. It is for those for whom I die. And then it is those to whom I care for and pray for. And I ever intercede for them. And I watch over them. And nothing ever shall take them out of my father's hand. I mean, that's a pretty wonderful thing 
to consider today and every day. The word works here in verse 36. It it really encompasses all of Jesus' life, all of Jesus' ministry, from the miraculous works through to all the works he did in his living and then certainly the work of dying and then rising again. All of Jesus' works. His healing of the physical sick and the raising of people like Lazarus from the dead and others from the dead. That's an illustration. They aren't just miracles to be done to go wow at. They are miracles that point to something deeper. You know that. They illustrate Christ's power to completely restore and heal us spiritually. To implant new life in us. We were spiritually dead. Christ comes and he has the power to raise us to new life. To implant the life of God in the very soul of a person. I want you to look at verse 2 of John 3 very quickly. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look at verse 31 of John 7 for a moment. Many of the crowd believed in him, it says there in John 7 verse 31. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Look at verse 47 of John 11. Verse 47 of John 11. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. John chapter 20, verse 30, let me read it for you. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And the very last verse of John's gospel, John chapter 21, verse 25 says, let me read that for you. It says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus' works reveal God. We see God in the works of Jesus. Just as God is the one who gives life, when Jesus gives life, he is working the works of God. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 37 and 38, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The result, next verse, just if you're curious, says, therefore they were seeking again to arrest him and he eluded their grasp. Why do you elude their grasp? He was on a mission. He was on a mission. You can't ever stop the divine mission of the Son. And so the major works that Jesus performed in the people's midst, they're revealed to us in the Gospel of John. 
Very quickly, what are they? Well, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana for one in John 2. The healing of the nobleman's son in John 4. The healing of the lame man by the pool at the beginning of John 5. The feeding of the 5,000, which is really the feeding of multiple, multiple, multiple thousands in John 6. What does that do? That shows us that Jesus possesses power over creation. The walking on water in John 6 does the same. The healing of a man born blind in John 9. The raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 11. They're all the, 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 the works that are mentioned in the Gospel of John. And so these works of Jesus show us not only Jesus' power, but it's also important to remember that the works of Jesus show us His nature. His nature, who He is. He has the exact nature as God. And these signs, these works that Jesus performed were works that were given to Him by the Father to perform. And as I made mention of before, they are signs that point to something greater than themselves. They point to Jesus being authorized by God. Jesus then proceeds to build upon that testimony of his works, and he then calls another witness in to further authenticate and validate his own self-testimony to him being the Savior, the Son of God. And that is now, third, the testimony of the Father in verses 37 to 38. Look there with me in John 5 at verses 37 and 38. Jesus says, the Father who sent me, he's testified of me. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, there's two occasions in Scripture where the Father gives testimony to the Son in unmistakable terms. You know these, when Jesus is baptized and at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is transfigured. Matthew chapter 3 verse 17, Matthew chapter 17 verse 5, a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in one instance, it's added, the father adds, listen to him. Listen to him. And then in the second half of verse 37, and then verse 38, we're, uh, we're again reminded of who Jesus is addressing here, the Jewish leaders, because Jesus begins to indict them. He begins to condemn them. Look at the middle of verse 37. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding you, for you do not believe. That's a word of indictment for having never seen or never heard. You've got to remember that these people prided themselves on what they possessed. And what they possessed was the scripture, the law. They were the chosen ethnicity that God had in times past certainly revealed himself to. After all, God spoke to Moses. God revealed himself to Jacob. Did the same to Gideon. But Jesus here indicts them for unbelief. And the reason for their unbelief Jesus says there is, at the end of verse 35, or beginning of verse 38, you do not have my word in you. The word which reveals to them who God is. 
God the Father has revealed himself in times gone by, as I mentioned, to Moses and Jacob and Gideon and the like. But he has in the last days revealed himself through his son, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The fourth and final testimony now. Jesus has dragged in three witnesses to testify to who he is. And now there's a fourth and final testimony. And that is fourth, the testimony of the word of God in verses 39 to 47. I want you to know that this is how Jesus now closes out this long discourse. That he began all the way back in verse 17. And we must understand here that Jesus has saved the best until last. In many ways now, Jesus is bringing in his star witness. His star witness. The witness that gives testimony to him of being the savior of the world, the son of God. And I love the illustration. I believe it was James Montgomery Boyce. I love the illustration the appeal that Jesus makes to the testimony of Scripture here is like how a star witness is brought in at the very end of a trial to nail down the case for prosecution. You think of it this way, you have a man who is on trial for murder. The witnesses come forward. The first witness comes forward and shows how the accused had the opportunity to commit the murder. The accused was present in the area when the crime was committed. Then the second witness comes in and shows that the accused had motive for committing the crime. The third witness comes in and then proves that the accused had access to the very weapon that was used to commit the murder. But then the fourth and final witness comes in and they are an eyewitness and can in fact identify who the murderer is. Well, it's that exact kind of process that Jesus is doing here. The first witness was John. He was a true witness, a prophet sent not from man, but from God. But he could be discredited, like anyone who comes and brings God's word to bear. Not infallible. That was the first witness, John. The second witness was Jesus' works. They evidence that Jesus is working God's works. The third witness then enters the scene and adds to all of that. That's the, father, that's the fact that the Father speaks to Jesus' works. But all of those fall into the background of the witness of the Word of God, the Scripture. Some may sit there and say, well, that sounds like a bit of a stretch. Some pretty powerful witnesses. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that's where the apostle Peter, after making observation of the transfiguration, of hearing from the Father's voice, he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, even though that was incredibly powerful to witness the transfiguration and to hear the voice of the Father thunder from the heavens, all that I experienced. What did Peter say? He said in that verse, we have the word of God made more sure. 
And so Jesus condemns the Jewish leaders before him in these verses because they searched the scriptures, he says. That word search is an intense word, a very, very intense word. They, they really, really dig into the scripture thinking that in doing that they have eternal life, but they don't. Why? Look at verse 40. Because they are unwilling to come. Unwilling. They're unwilling. Do you know that each and every one of us was unwilling until, as the psalmist tells us, that we were made willing by God in the day of God's power upon our soul? Lost. Unwilling. The word unwilling means desire, had zero desire to come to God until God, by the living water in the person of Christ, gave us the desire to come to Him. Who gets glory with sound doctrine? God or man? God. When we understand the depths of our depravity and how we were stuck on the bottom of an ocean floor and that God came and rescued us from the very bottom of an ocean, who gets praise? Man who high-fives God and says we did it or all glory and praise to God who gave us new life? In verses 45 to 47, we see here that Jesus tells these Jewish people that they had an unhealthy, elevated view of Moses. In Matthew 23, verse 2, Jesus condemned the religious Jews and said this to them, you have seated yourselves in the chair of Moses. What's We read here that... Jesus says they have set their hope on Moses. What's a tragic tale of sad irony is that in the end, these Jews, these same Jews, they would show that even though they set their hope on Moses, they don't even understand Moses because they would use the law of Moses to crucify Jesus. Jesus, who here in our passage has given rock-solid, rapid-fire, multiple testimony from outside His own testimony that He is indeed the Savior of the world, the Son of God. I thought long and hard this week about how do we apply this passage before us. Quite a difficult passage to boil down. How do we apply it? Well, I'd say this, number one, believe. Believe. If you are here in unbelief, if you have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for newness of life, that, that you're a guilty sinner and that He hung on that cross in your place, that He bore your sin upon that cross and then He rose again victorious over death, meaning that death no longer has victory or sting over you then you need to believe. Because the same indictment that Jesus made to these people standing before Him is your indictment. That you've neither seen or heard His voice. Well, I, I want to tell you that today you can be given ears to hear His voice. And so number one, believe. 
You believe in all the wrath that is currently abiding upon you evaporates into thin air because Christ took it all upon the cross. You must respond in belief today. And number two, second way I think we can apply this is to think of the fact that John the Baptist was faithful. He was faithful and so ought we be faithful. John the Baptist was all about himself and his own will decreasing and Jesus increasing. You remember that John the Baptist took all the joy in simply being the best man at the wedding and as soon as the bridegroom arrived, he was happy to just fade into the background. But he was faithful to preach the hard things. He was faithful to minister in the hard times. Also think that we saw how Jesus drawed upon the testimony of his own works. Own works given to him by the Father. Well, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that before time began, we were given works by our Father to perform. We have works to do. They're not works to save us. They're works to bring glory to the one who saved us. The Father sent the Son into the world to shine, to do a mighty work, and the Father sends us into the world to shine as lights in the world. The Scripture, the Scripture ought to be where we go for wisdom, for they reveal to us the glory of Christ. I think we can apply this passage as a call to marked faithfulness to fulfill the works that we've been given by our Father to do. And the fuel for that is to behold the glory of Christ. And there is no other place to behold the glory of Christ than in the Scripture. You know that word unwilling in verse 40, I cannot escape it. No desire. No desire. Meaning it's a matter of satisfaction. Someone is not willing to come to Jesus because they're finding satisfaction in something else. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. One bite of him and you never hunger again. Satisfaction. Jesus said, I am the living water. Anyone who drinks of me shall never thirst satisfaction. We have been given much. And the gospel of John reminds us of all that we've been given. And in light of all that we've been given, let's go out and be faithful and do the works that we've been called to do by our Father. And let's always behold our Christ in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for this time. And Lord, we pray that you would take all that's transpired here today and help us rejoice in our hearts that you have expressed your love and your kindness to us today. I pray, Father, that you would keep us one just as you are one. That we would be united around the gospel 
both its message and its applications. Both are incredibly significant in our life. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he just systematically presented to us testimony upon testimony upon testimony of why he is indeed the savior of the world. We know that not everyone in the world is saved, and so that can't mean that. We know, Father, that he is the one savior the world has. And we rejoice that we have been saved by that one savior, who is indeed the son of God. And so, Father, help us to be impacted by this by your spirit. Bless our fellowship afterward. We thank you for all things. We pray, Father, that for those who came here in unbelief, they may leave in belief, in possession of eternal life. Help us who have eternal life to live life in his name. And the measure by which we behold the glory of Christ is the measure by which we live this life. And so help us to be faithful. Even when the world maligns us, help us to show love for you having been compelled by your great love for us. Because after all, we love because you first loved us. I pray that you take everything that's happened here today and bless it far abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. And all God's people said, Amen.